Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. My name's Andrew Learmonth. And I'm Louise Wilson. On this edition of the podcast, we'll bring you an interview with Scotland's Chief Scientist, Professor David Crossman. Uh, He's the Dean of Medicine at the University of St Andrews and is talking to our colleague Jenny Davidson about clinical trials, Scotland's contribution to COVID research and some of the vaccine trials that are being worked on in Scotland at the moment. Uh, They also touch on the public response to COVID research, the effect of the pandemic on other medical research and the future of medical research in Scotland and the UK. But before all that, let's talk about last week. It's been a busy old seven days. Uh, When we last recorded this podcast, it was just a couple of hours into Dominic Cummings' evidence to the House of Commons COVID inquiry. Uh, Fair to say that his testimony has proved uh, explosive. Um, You saw all eight hours, Louise, didn't you? What did you make of it? I did, for my sins, the entire thing. Um, I mean, theoretically, that was because I was writing the sketch for this uh, week's mag, but really, I just couldn't take my eyes off it. Um, so I guess the biggest thing is that, you know, he apologised for all the COVID deaths, saying the government had failed to protect people and that tens of thousands of people had died who didn't need to die. And then he went on the attack. He said Boris Johnson was unfit for the job of prime minister and that Matt Hancock should have been fired for at least 15 or 20 things. Of course, Johnson and Hancock have since rejected those accusations, as you'd expect. Um, he claimed the UK had been unprepared for the first lockdown because they were planning on a herd immunity approach that we've all heard so much about. Um, and that's why it wasn't until quite late in March that lockdown was, was introduced. But then he said the PM hadn't learned the lessons from that first wave and ignored the advice on second lockdown because he was more concerned about the economy, which then, as we know, has led to an even longer lockdown at the start of 2021. So really quite explosive claims that um, the Down- Downing Street and Matt Hancock in particular is working quite hard to uh, to get rid of now. Um, but of course, that was there was a bit of good coronavirus news this week. Sorry, I'll say that again. That was muddled. Of course, there was a bit of good coronavirus news this week. The UK recorded its first day of no COVID-related deaths in on Tuesday. Um, and in Glasgow, which is where you are, is finally moving down to tier two after what, nine months? Nine months, I think. Nine months of some sort of lockdown here. So yeah, it's quite exciting. It's quite exciting. So uh, Nicholas Sturgeon sort of um, uh, sort of announced some changes to the COVID restrictions in Scotland. Uh, but actually, for, for many Scots, there's not going to be a huge amount of change. Um, so the word Health Secretary Hamza Yousaf used uh, was foothills. We're in the, the foothills of a third wave of the virus. What's, what's interesting about this wave is what effect the vaccine will have, because it looks as if the, the link between rising numbers of positive cases and uh, the, the rising numbers of uh, hospital admissions seems to be broken or certainly dented by the vaccine. So that's that seems to be quite positive news. However, the First Minister, you know, she said we're in a, a, a period of transition and she's taking a crossish approach. So she delayed easing of lockdown restrictions uh, across 13 local authorities, including Dundee, Edinburgh and Stirling. They're all going to stay 
uh, where they are in level two. But Glasgow, which, as you said, is where I am, uh, we're going to move from level three to level two. So that means from the end of the week, uh, I can have folk in the house. Uh, I can go to the pub and go indoors and have a pint. Um, I can I can hug folk if I want. I mean, I don't I don't want to, but you know, I, <laughs> if I wanted to, I I totally could. Um, and, and then, so there'll be some, uh, most of the part, rest of the country will be moving to, to, to level one, apart from some of the islands, which are now moving to level zero. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty happy because um, the prospect of leaving the city is particularly appealing. I can't quite, you know, quite excited about, you know, maybe going to Loch Lomond, even though I'm pretty sure everyone in Glasgow will be in Loch Lomond this weekend. But just getting out of the city is, yeah, very exciting. I mean, how about you? Are you, are you unhappy about being stuck in level two? Does it make much of a difference to you? Uh, to be honest, not really. I mean, I'm not even sure I know the differences between <laughs> level one and level two. The big thing for me was just being able to go inside other people's houses. So yeah. last weekend, I actually went around to a friend and Ooh, friends wow. and we had a curry. And that was the first time that we'd done that in, well, many, many months. And it felt incredible. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I guess that I guess I'm looking forward to moving down to tier one and yeah, tier zero yeah. eventually. But like because it's been such a long year i'm not yeah. even sure what that entails anymore what is normal life <laughs> i don't know i don't know i've don't, i mean this is normal life now isn't it <laughs> exactly exactly okay more good news is that the uk across the uk three quarters of adults have now received the first dose of the vaccine which weirdly puts me in the minority for something um, and then that links quite nicely into uh, our colleague Jenny Davids's interview with Scotland's chief scientist, Professor David Crossman. They talked a little about the vaccine trials that are still ongoing in Scotland, COVID research, and generally the public response to the pandemic. My name's Jenny Davidson. I'm one of the journalists with Holyrood, and I'm here with Professor David Crossman, who's the Dean of Medicine at the University of St Andrews, and he's also Scotland's Chief Scientist for Health, a big role at the moment. Um, now, we're going to be talking about clinical trials, which is obviously a big topic with COVID, and it's also, you may not know, it's Clinical Trials Month at the moment. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Professor Crossman. Well, it's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. Now. Um, Clinical trials is probably something that not that many people thought about before COVID unless they were actually personally involved in one. But obviously it's, you know, it's much higher profile now. And, you know, people will think about things like the Oxford vaccine, but they might not be aware that a lot of research has actually been going on in Scotland. Scotland's been very involved in, in COVID research. Um, what has Scotland's contribution been to COVID research? What's been going on here? Well, um, thank you for that question. I think Scotland can be very proud of its, what it's done in this area. Um, in large part, it has contributed and collaborated with research across the UK. And there's a very good reason for doing that. Um, and that is that um, if you want to get answers quickly, you have to do things at scale. Um, uh, and so there's been a, a, a very... Uh, impressive four nation approach and um, Scotland has by and large over recruited to those on its per capita uh, uh, basis um, so I, I think uh, that's the first point I wanted to make that uh, we've seen the importance of working together working at scale working quickly and we have contributed across a number of trials 
um, in a number of areas, um, obviously therapeutics and obviously vaccines. Um, and I have to say, I think the UK and thereby Scotland come out of this extremely well. Um, what, um, what kind of research has been going on over the last year? So um, I think the research, I think you could break down into a number of areas, but um, let's start with clinical trials. Um, many of you will have heard of the recovery trial, uh, which is a, we call it a platform trial. It's a, it, it's, um, a one single system that's trialing a number of drugs and interventions uh, in um, COVID. And uh, it's obvious to state, but worth restating, COVID has a very high morbidity and mortality. Um, and uh, at the start of this, we needed to uh, prove what were the best treatments. There were plenty of candidates. <laughs> Uh, but we didn't know that they uh, which ones really worked. Um, so going through that, of course, um, the success um, of uh, recovery has been the much uh, repeated um, finding of dexamethasone, um, which is, of course, a, a cheap and available steroid. And that's been a huge achievement to actually approve that. Um, there are other therapies that have been um, assessed by recovery and, um, uh, and, and uh, one of those is the proof um, that an inhibition of an inflammatory cytokine and a mediator that provokes inflammation actually is of benefit, and that's uh, blocking the IL-6 pathway, uh, most uh, abundantly done by tocilizumab. But um, the, the drug name doesn't matter. <clears throat> the important thing is that we've, we've shown that interruption of an exaggerated biological response uh, has thera therapeutic benefit. And although perhaps less sort of hitting you between the eyes um, the, the, than the positive results are, of course, the negative results. Um, in medicine, one of the truths is that there's almost no thing that is free of a side effect. Um, but if you're not going to get any advantage, you will only get the side effects. And so, um, uh, hydroxychloroquine, for example, was proven to be of no benefit. Uh, the fairly common antibiotic, but with side effects, azithromycin, no benefit, and so on and so forth. Um, perhaps one of the most contentious was the um, lack of e efficacy of uh, convalescent plasma, uh, certainly in the, in the group that it was trialed in. Uh, so. I think there's much to be um, seen as real and practical benefit, but I'd like to highlight and take the opportunity of this to highlight something that was led by Scotland uh, that is a UK study, and that is the, the so-called genomic 
study. Now, when I talk to undergraduates, uh, which I do occasionally still, you know, I say, why do people get infections um, when other people don't? And um, obviously, part of that's the dose of the infecting agent. Um, uh, and part of it is the infectivity of the agent. And we become very interested in the relatively in, in infectiousness of different variants of COVID. But undoubtedly, one of the important bits is the individual's, what we call host response. Um, and the evidence is that that is driven by genetic back, back, uh, the genetic background of the individual. And the genomic study led by Kenny Bailey at the University of Edinburgh has been a spectacular success. Um, and it's come up with um, new uh, therapeutic uh, targets emerging from the uh, association of genetic variation within specific genes with severity. Uh, and some of these are um, potentially tractable uh, with agents that already exist, but they do support the fact that an exaggerated inflammatory response uh, to this viral infection is part of the pathogenesis of the disease complex. Um, so uh, genomic will um, you know, go on reporting and, uh, and, and collecting data. Um, and I think that is indicating things for the future, but it's a huge effort um, and one that we can be really proud of. So therapeutics, new discoveries have been um, abundant in the uh, uh, work that has gone on in Scotland. And some of this, I'm pleased to say, has actually been led by Scotland uh, and is recognised as such. Mm. And people might assume that now we have well, three vaccines being administered, more vaccines in the pipeline, that probably COVID research might be tailing off. But that's not the case, is it? We've actually had another three vaccine trials launched here in the last few weeks. Why is that and what are they looking at? Right. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, clearly, and, and, and it, it bears repetition, um, the vaccine story um, in COVID is an enormous success. Uh, and the pathway to developing the vaccine for this particular infective agent, SARS-CoV-2, has been telescoped. Uh, and what normally takes years has happened in months. And that's tribute to an enormous international effort, but one that I think the United Kingdom can be really proud of. Um, and Scotland's played its part in that, um, in the uh, initial trials of the vaccines. Uh, but as you allude to, continuing vaccine research. Now, I suppose the, the premise of the question, and one that I can well see, is, well, we've got vaccines and they sort of work. You know, we just, you know, just crack on, don't we? But we, there are a lot of questions um, that remain. Um, so um, there's the issue of, I mean, pr 
you know, fairly simple aspect of vaccine uh, uh, management is, you know, when do you need to give a boost vaccine? Um, and there's a trial going on in that. We've all had boosters and, you know, if you have tetanus, uh, which we've probably all been immunized, if you have a nasty, dirty cut, you get given a booster, don't you? And we're, we're very familiar with that type of thing. We don't know any of that with COVID. So that's an important thing. We do not know about the safe use of vaccines in pregnancy. Um, and pregnancy, um, unfortunately, um, people get who are pregnant do, can get quite bad COVID. So... Uh, we would want to understand that. We um, really, um, you know, don't understand why vaccines fail in some people. And um, uh, there's a Scottish lead uh, in McInnes in Glasgow is leading um, a, uh, a, a an investigation into people who are immunosuppressed or might be. Um, expected not to get a very good vaccine response. And that's enormously important uh, to be able to say, you know, who, who's going to get a less good response from a vaccine than the, the, the usual uh, uh, person. There are new ways of developing vaccines. One of the, I, I'm going to make a prediction which is always risky, but one of the real dividends uh, that's coming from COVID is RNA vaccine technology. It has completely changed vaccine, the vaccine world. And this, not to go into too much detail, but it, it is uh, putting the virus into the, a person in a completely different way, i.e. at the level of its molecules. Um, and then that obviously is uh, transcribed and the body reacts to the product that's transcribed. And um, that's been a huge success. And I think it surprised everyone, to be honest. Uh, the Pfizer is is one such. Um, but there are other ways of uh, of uh, vaccinating people. There's, uh, 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 obviously, the AZ vaccine, but um, there's the Valneva um, uh, vaccine, um, which is a uh, a viral based uh, vaccine, um, and that is. Um, I'm pleased to say we've managed to get manufactured in Scotland and the, the um, proof of efficacy type research is happening around that. Um, and there are other ways of introducing vi uh, viral products to induce a vaccine response. Uh, and uh, a good example of that would be the Medicargo trial, which is also being um, run in Scotland out of uh, NHS Grampian. So, to summarise, I think, you know, we realise we need, you know, you always need better. Uh, we've seen side effects with AZ, uh, they're well rehearsed. Um, we need uh, things that will give a greater vaccine efficacy. We need to know how to manage people who may not get such a good vaccine response. Uh, we need to know whether it's uh, vaccines uh, are safe and able to be used in pregnancy. And we need to know when we need to give booster vaccines and whether that should be with the same vaccine or a different vaccine. Um, and the latter, the, that last point, whether it should be with a different vaccine, is really important because um, I suspect we're going to have to change our vaccines because of the um, 
the development of new variants, which seem to occur really quite quickly with this virus. So um, I hope that rather long answer gives you uh, clarity that the, the field of vaccine research is alive and well and needs to be. Uh, it's not a done deal. Certainly going to be more research ongoing for quite some time by the sound of it then. Yeah, and going back to what you mentioned about the, the RNA vaccine, that's actually a very significant breakthrough that people might not be aware. I think that it's right, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine are both RNA vaccines, but but actually that's the result, not just of recent research into COVID, but actually decades of research into trying to get a working RNA vaccine, and that could be applied to other diseases as well, couldn't it? Yeah, oh, uh, for certain it will be um, it, it, in in due course. I mean, the, the, the basic advantage of the RNA vaccine, um, there, are, there are many, but it is, um, it, it, there is the uh, sheer sort of preparation and uh, a manufacture uh, which can be done in a sort of single big flask as opposed to multiple steps. Um, and so you can make, you can make RNA in that way. And uh, the other thing is, of course, with this business of new variants, you can just change the code of what you're growing up in, in that flask um, very quickly. Um, and that is hugely relevant to these new variants that, that are, are arising. Um, and I suspect uh, we are dealing with this becoming an endemic virus and we will be changing our vaccine formulation, uh, trying to stay one he- step ahead of what the vaccine's doing um, in a way that is, you know, the people are familiar with, with flu. Well, maybe people aren't familiar, but um, every year, you know, the, 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 the makeup of your flu jab is changed. Um, on the um, profile and research that's going on of what what strain is going around. Now, I I don't like making analogies between one viral infection and another because there's nearly always a bit of a breakdown. But actually, that that idea that you need to be changing what you're jabbing people with um, over time is obviously well understood with other viruses. And I suspect it will be with this coronavirus that likes to change uh, really quite quickly. Yeah. And obviously you can't um, develop medicines, you can't develop vaccines without the help of patients and the public. So what has the the public reaction to COVID-19 research been? Well, I mean, fantastic is the quick answer. Um, We couldn't have done any of this without the public who have uh, been brilliant. Um, And uh, clearly some of this has been, you know, analysed. But I mean, just you don't need analysis to know that, uh, you know, genomic studies and clinical trials and vaccine studies and the the rate people signed up to have vaccine trials and uh, on, on, online um, just tells you that the public are four square behind the notion that research is the way out of this. Um, the, the there there are surveys that uh, you know say that the that you know sixty six percent of people in Scotland I'm pleased to say think that. Uh, Research has played a very important role in the pandemic, um, and 
23% said fairly important. So, I mean, that's a huge number of uh, people. And uh, um, and the vast majority of Scottish adults um, strongly agree or agree a bit that uh, uh, it's important that the NHS offers research. Um, and I'm raising that point now at this stage in the interview because the there's there's research doesn't just sort of happen in a vacuum um and treatment uh doesn't just happen separately um the nhs is the key organization that can and does deliver research into disease now obviously there's research done in labs and in the universities and that's hugely important but when it comes to research in people and research in disease in particular, the importance of the NHS and having research embedded and as a critical function of the NHS um, has been perhaps slightly underemphasized in the past. No more. Patients clearly completely understand um, that uh, the that uh, the importance of research and they understand that it's done in the nhs um and they understand the importance of it and the fi- uh, and the fi- that figure um, that i've just quoted uh, shows how important people believe that and i think that's something for us to build on um the uh, we there's so much else to research you know uh, in cancer and heart disease and degenerative neurological disease that hopefully um, this will have, this awful pandemic will have at least one slightly positive legacy. Yeah, yeah, and um, obviously there, there's more to research than just COVID and, and perhaps some of that has, has had to be put on the back burner a bit. How has um, the pandemic impacted research into other things? Obviously there's, there's cancer, there's heart disease, strokes, multiple sclerosis, all sorts of illnesses and, and conditions that, that normally there would be research ongoing into? Yeah, well, the sad truth is that a, a lot of that has had to uh, run much slower. Um, and as indeed, of course, much of the NHS has had to have a gear shift towards COVID. And similarly, with other research, we have only a certain amount of capacity within the NHS um, to undertake research. Um, So, um, yes, I'm afraid some of that has slowed down. And there are obviously reasons why, um, beyond just people doing this, patients have not felt that they want to come up to hospitals and things like that, and one can understand that. Um, There are very substantial efforts to get research, non-COVID research, up and running again. And I'm pleased to say that you know, some of that is now um, bearing fruit. Um, and the, the, one of the issues, though, for this is that often to do this type of research, let's take cancer, for example, you have to have the service the routine service up and running to actually do the research alongside. You can't do it as a separate entity. So the re-establishment of clinical service has been really important. 
And, you know, I, I'm sure everybody wanted more, but actually it's quite extraordinary how things have continued alongside COVID. And I'm pleased to say that uh, research is increasingly getting restarted with that. There is um, obviously along the way um, a desire now to blend these two issues that, uh, that I've alluded to. The, the first being research embedded in the NHS to a much greater extent, and the second being restarting non-COVID research. Um, and the, uh, the programme, I think, led from uh, uh, UK government, um, UK clinical research, uh, we are talking about getting, you know, what, what we've been doing in microcosm in um, COVID times and COVID research rolled out to be the norm. And that's going to be uh, quite challenging. Um, but uh, a, a step towards that is obviously um, getting our non-COVID research back up and running. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that, you know, that, that cancer research is, is certainly getting back up and running again in, in Scotland. Um, there is more work to do here. And there are other issues around um, yes, funding and so on and so forth, but um, uh, which are, are a challenge. A lot of research was funded by charities and they've had a very hard time in COVID. So a very tough scene, tough gig this, um, but um, I think the signs are good. Um, that uh, the re-establishment of non-COVID research, you know, that is happening now, um, and there are some real uh, achievements there. Whether you know this will, you know, survive another wave, or whether, God forbid, um, I, I think we'll have to see. But hopefully we are over the worst with a vaccinated population and we can start returning to this business as usual, but being done in a different way. Might there be a positive, actually, because awareness has been raised of medical research in general, that perhaps more people will now be interested in taking part and participating in other medical research that's going on? That could be one of the, the benefits that comes out of it, although there's clearly a lot of negatives. Yeah, I like to think so. Um, and I think the um, you know the surveys um, would support that. Um, the challenge for us is to meet those expe expectations with uh, the appropriate infrastructure and capacity to deliver. Um, and um, and I think that will be a challenge. Um, uh, 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 but one, as I say, that is being um, actively pursued. <coughs> Um, through the uh, UK clinical research delivery um, plan. Um, we, uh, and I, I mean, I, I don't know if you're going to come to that, but there are, um, you know, that, that was um, launched in March um, and is looking at the future of clinical research in the UK. But um, I, I am very optimistic that things will come from that. 
uh, and I don't know if you want to cover those now, but it's more than just encouragement to participate. It's about doing differently uh, because uh, we've learned from the platform trials how important it is to use digital systems, um, data, in other words, uh, to do these studies um, um, and, I, I, and many other things. But uh, so, yes, I, I think there will be dividends. And I, but I, and I think very definitely we should capture those. The public certainly will understand this better. Uh, but I think we have to turn to ourselves to say, how are we going to actually do these differently for heart disease and cancer and so on and so forth? Um, and how are we actually going to deliver people's expectations, um, which is, uh, partly system change and getting it baked into the system but it's partly about money as well yeah you, you've mentioned a couple of times this um research paper the future of uk clinical research delivery the uk government paper which is as you said published in march and it, it's about the future of clinical research across the uk and then the nhs um in each of the the four countries will We'll have to embed that, isn't that right? It's sort of setting out some some aims and principles for the for the future of clinical research that will then be put into practice and needs to be sort of action taken following. And that, what you know, what are some of the the key points that that that's describing, that's aiming for? So, lightheartedly, I might describe this as telling us what we knew we should have been doing for years. Um, but more seriously, I think. Uh, it is saying that clinical research must be embedded in the NHS's core business. And I think, you know, bluntly, I don't think it has been. I think it's all been about service and targets. And those are very important. Please do not misunderstand me uh, and safety and so on and so forth. But actually having that running alongside, you know, the issue of patient safety and outcomes and things I think is really important and we don't measure in the same way uh, at board level research productivity as we do on outcomes and safety. Um, I think we uh, have learned that engaging with patients is really important so a stream is patient-centered research um, and I think we've often done what can be done uh, but you know i think people you know do want to see research in diseases that matter to them um the third part of this uh, there's five themes um is a system approach um that is to make our systems for doing research more streamlined this is rather specialist i suppose um and you need to be involved in research to almost understand what i'm saying but the process of doing research is quite clunky uh in the nhs um we need a workforce that are up for this at the moment there are clinical staff and there are people that do research and they're a bit separate um and to pull this off we need to have more alignment with that so as the the nurses who's looking after a patient 
whether that's in accident emergency or the ward or coronary care or wherever, actually is saying, you know, shouldn't this patient be recruited or whatever. Uh, but the final bit that I think is the, the big change, a bit like RNA vaccines, the big change is data. And we've known this for years. We've known that we should be digitalizing what we're doing. And we are pretty much on the edge of being able to do this now. So I'll tell a little story, the, the risk of going on too long. When you do a study, when I used to do a study, you had to find the patients. So often you want patients with a certain things. So you would go through registers or whatever, or you'd wait for other people to find them. Then you have to consent them, uh, which obviously is terribly important, but is a process with a face-to-face -face and so on and so forth. Uh, then you have to do whatever you're going to do, and then you have to record the data uh, and you, have, you often were recording outcomes um, that are uh, that you actually collected new data as a whole, completely separate set of things, so full blood counts or renal function or whatever. Uh, and then, of course, you had to analyze it for the results. All of that can be done digitally. So the, find, the finding of patients uh, can be done digitally through coding and so on and so forth. Electronic consent has been established, uh, so that can be done. And then the really big breakthrough has been the use of, you know, routine clinical data um, that can be used for the outcomes. Um, and I think we've been talking about this for a bit too long, and you know, finding all the problems and things. But actually, this this I I suspect uh, and one of the planks of this. Uh, the five themes of this uh, um, uh, UK research delivery um, plan is uh, research enabled by data and digital tools. And uh, we talked about legacy from COVID, and I think this will be one. It, we've, it's made us all realise this is the way to do it. Um, and it will change things forever, uh, uh, I'm sure. Uh, and hopefully should make things more efficient. Uh, and more streamlined as well, some of the other objectives uh, in this five-point plan. Mm -hmm. What do you see the, the future looking like, like in clinical research, assuming this is implemented and we, we take the lessons from COVID? Well, there's a future that you want and a future that you might realistically realise. The future one will want is that everybody with a disease with unsatisfactory management should be in a clinical trial or should be in some form of research. Um, that's pretty difficult to deliver. But actually, as a premise, it's pretty hard to argue against. And the reason why cancer, which is still a terrible condition, but why therapy has happened and why there are some bright lights in, in cancer now is that bluntly people, you know, when I was a medical student, knew it was probably going to kill. And so there was a motive to say, no, everybody with, you know, leukemia must be in a trial. Um, and when I was a medical student where I was trained, that's exactly what happened. 
Um, and slowly, slowly, things have been improved. Now, I think if we could do that with you know, the egregious challenges that, uh, that remain with heart failure, I'm a cardiologist, so I always think of uh, heart disease, uh, with um, neurodegenerative disease, uh, multiple sclerosis remains a huge challenge in Scotland, um, and you know liver disease, uh, which is a is a real problem again in Scotland, driven by obesity and alcohol and so on and so forth. Those are the real challenges which are abundant, and of course then there's the huge one of dementia, which but uh, which I think would be great. Uh, sadly, we have too few uh, targets. For, uh, in that condition, but we obviously should be having that as top priority uh, because in the end, it, these things only yield with research. They're not going to go away. And if we've learned one thing, absolutely emphatically, research is the way out of these difficult and appalling conditions. Um, did we need to be told it again? Probably not. But repetition is a very important stimulus to change. So what do I think the future will look like? Um, I'd love it that everybody was in research. I suspect that won't be the case for various reasons. Um, and those aren't, you know, laziness or incompetence. They are that, you know, you have to do research in certain ways and some people have exclusion criteria and things like that. But I I do hope uh, and I do believe that we will be able to push the research agenda further up the, um, you know, the, in, in terms of importance uh, in those that manage the NHS. Uh, and uh, it isn't a criticism, but it is an impression that I have that this wasn't really at the top of people's thinking before. and. I really hope uh, and I believe that we have an opportunity to make sure that it is much nearer the top. Of course, outcomes will, will be the thing that worry people, but perhaps next to outcomes is, and was this person in a clinical trial, especially if there's a bad outcome, which sadly is too often the case. Let's hope that that is the case and, and we see that change. Thank you very much for talking to us, Professor Crossman. It was really interesting. Thank you. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends, because everybody has an interest in politics.